Welcome to Highly Volatile, an unfiltered podcast for real-life professional traders, investors, and top executives. To be the best, you need your thoughts and perspectives challenged by the best. This podcast series features some of the most thought-provoking and disruptive minds in both business and investing. My name is Kevin Van Trump, and I'm joined each podcast by my good friend, legendary trader and angel investor, Andy Daniels. Together, we attempt to challenge the conventional and gain a better understanding of the disruptor. We search high and low for wealth hacks and exciting new investment opportunities. But at the same time, try to uncover hidden pitfalls or unforeseen changes coming our direction that might rock our worlds. We hope you're challenged by our unfiltered thoughts and conversations and enjoy our highly volatile podcast. And please remember, there's risk in trading futures and options. You should carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for you in light of your circumstances and financial resources, foundations for you to buy or sell any commodity, any stock, or any type of other investment. So make sure you use the podcast as an educational tool to broaden your horizons and maybe add a bit more perspective. Hey, this is Kevin Van Trump here with another edition of the Highly Volatile Podcast. I got my good friend Andy Daniels on the line and uh, one of our friends, Jim Meyer. So I'm going to turn it over to Andy and let him introduce Jim and we'll kind of get things rolling here. Andy, go ahead. Okay, great, Kevin. Thanks. Well, I'm, uh, we talked a little bit about this towards the end of our, uh, our podcast last week and uh, super excited to have uh, Jim Meyer join us. I've had the pleasure of knowing Jim for, God, I hate to even date myself, but probably close to 35 years. Um, we do an annual quail hunt every year in, uh, in, in north central Missouri. And um, we've just gotten had a real good time in, in, that, in that regard. But, uh, you know, Jim comes from a very steep background in the uh, advertising world, having spent 20 years, um, you know, making big brand advertising. He's been everything from a CMO to a CEO. And uh, he then ran a digital media company um, and a couple market research organizations. Um, and I'm really excited to have Jim with us today. He um, is going to shed some light on what the post-COVID world might look like, and among other things, including horse racing and uh, other other uh, lots of his uh, of his interests. So, Jim, welcome. Glad to have you aboard. Uh, uh, thanks, Andy. It was very nice of you, and I'm I'm very glad to join you guys. You forgot to mention how good a quail shot I am. I, I figure you'll get to that later. <laughs> no doubt on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Jim, I think a lot of people are kind of wondering, what's the world, we all know what it's looking like now, it's changing by the day, um, yeah. but what, you know, in the post-COVID world, how are things going to look in terms of, you know, consumers and, and brands and media and advertising? Um, you know, there's a real change of consumer, consumer behavior and attitudes that I, I sense and feel. Uh, yeah. how, do you, how do you see that right now, Jim? Wow, I mean, you're asking the uh, $64,000 question. I think, um, I, th I guess for me, you know, you, you, one way to look at it is everything is upside down. It's all crazy, and you say, wow, how, how do you make sense out of this? But the truth is I think that um, I sort of go the other way and try to think of the parts that make, that are logical based on what we know about human beings. Because in the end of the day, that's really, that's what's happened here. I mean, we've got, we've got this, um, huge 
exogenous shock called COVID that comes into the system and a bunch of other other shocks that have entered the system at the same time. And we're, we're all, you know, we're human beings. So how do human beings react? Well, it, it, it turns out that, that people have a predictable set of emotional needs or requirements that they sort of cycle through. So, and it all starts, you know, there was a theorist who wrote a, a piece back in, in the forties called Abraham Maslow. Most, of, most people who listen to this remember that from college and he, he had a thing called hierarchy of needs turns out to be very useful and very predictive of, of what people are going to do. So on the bottom of that needs pyramid is basic security. So people under stress and under pressure do the thing that we saw everybody do, which is they hoard. They worry about, immediately about their own physical survival. So all of those things that you saw people do, you know, suddenly the, the store shelves are, are all the toilet paper is gone and all the paper towel is gone, the cleaning supplies. They, they, their first thought is no longer of higher order stuff about their own happiness or their own achievement or the performance of their kids in school. It reverts to, oh, God, what do I do to make sure that I get through this physically? So a lot of the shopper behavior that we saw was, was predictable, scary, but predictable based on the way humans react. What's interesting next is that people then kind of, once they've satisfied that, they go up to a security level and they say, how do I make sure that, my, that I'm secure? Now, there wasn't a lot of physical security issues, but there are emotional security issues. So if you, it's very interesting to look at what people watched on television, for example. Suddenly now, right, television becomes the big, the big thing. You're, you're quarantined, you're locked down at home, what do you do? Well, TV viewership explodes, but it doesn't explode uniformly. So what people watch a lot of, and you don't hear this a lot because Netflix and, and um, Hulu and, you know, a, a lot of newer stuff got all, the, got all the press, but there was a tremendous spike in old-fashioned television or in tried-and-true television brands. People glommed on to stuff that was familiar, that they remember from their youth and from, from happier times, and it helped them feel emotionally secure. At the same time, what's interesting is that people under pressure feel a need for a little bit of excitement, a little bit of, of a uh, you know, break from the day-to-day because the day-to-day is scary enough. And that's where you see all the adoption of new programs on TV and, and, the, and the big spike in, in, uh, in interest. I mean, a lot of shows were made um, by COVID. Um, so a lot of the, the producers, the, the Netflix guys, the people producing streaming content are, are um, in Fat City, because the, not just because they had the product for people to watch, but because people had an emotional desire to consume that product um, as a diversion from the from their day-to-day reality. So I think we've seen sort of phase one and kind of heading into phase two of some of the emotional impacts of that. But, but I think we got a ways to go. I mean, I, I don't think uh, – I got no crystal ball. I, I think the things that people have done so far are pretty, are pretty predictable based on, on what we know about human beings. But now we've got, we got, we got a trip to take. What do you think? What do you, what do you guys? What do you guys see in your world? Do you see people acting normal again? Do you see them? What do you see? 
I think that, uh, Jim, this Kevin, I think it explains, like, uh, just what you, you went through there. I mean, we've, we've seen this surge on the food side and the ag side. You've seen a resurgence back to what Michelle and I say are childhood foods, you know, big push and yeah. uh, numbers with Kraft Heinz and who was just getting hammered and couldn't sell anything. Now you see a big push in Velveeta cheese and macaroni and, exactly. you know, things we all had as kids and, and things. And on Netflix, you see, like, what is it, Tiger King or whatever the hell the crazy is. Like you said, people are wanting a little bit of risk and something crazy to uh, break the monotony. So just like you were saying, yeah, you see a lot of that uh, playing out for certain. That's that's interesting. And, you know, I, I think if you – you kind of knew those tools going in it certainly would help uh investment strategy wise and uh, sure we're, we're, we're seeing that play out and you know that that has definitely been the uh the go-to so i don't know i i, well, no, I don't know i just yeah i'm with you guys How, where do we go from here well know. if you look back at, at 9-11 um you know 9-11 really united us as a people, and maybe because it was a, a national issue and, and, and the like. But but unlike now, I mean, 9-11 was a uniting factor for this country anyway, and COVID, for a host of reasons, is very, very, very divisive. I mean, there, there's no, there's no uh, national uh, anthems being sung. We're, we're in the midst of riots and, and uh just a lot of destructive behavior and and we're becoming so so partisan that it's it's scary in in that way but but it's also going to lead to something else and you know out of the ashes rise the phoenix um and i guess that's kind of a question i have is where do we where do we go from here and and what you know we we keep being divisive um and it just seems to be yeah, maybe because of the election coming up and everything else. And, again, there's no partisanship that I've ever seen anything like this before in terms of the lack of partisanship on any level. Um, and I just kind of wonder, you know, where does all that – how does that all play out? I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I sort of, I sort of wonder what – I can't quite get a handle on how many – how big the population is that isn't divisive and is keeping its mouth shut. That's the part I can't get a grip on. I mean, the, the diff, your, your point about 9-11 is so right. I mean, you know, people forget, but during 9-11, you know, the country was not exactly unified, but all it took was a couple of, of uh, you know, bad guys to fly airplanes into national monuments and, and buildings with thousands of people in them, and people turn around and say, hey, <laughs> We may fight with each, just like a family. You know, we may fight with each other, but we're not. You know, you, screw you. We're 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 unified to you against you, but we don't have there's, we don't have that during COVID. Um, what we do have is social media, and we have um, we have a completely different media landscape. We have a different. I can't work out. You know, I think back to the 16 election. And I was this. I was this. I was running a business at Ipsos, which is a big research and polling firm, and I was CMO of Ipsos. And I and I and and we were seeing indications in the data that we weren't just asking people, "Hey, who are you going to vote for?" We were asking people about the issues that that concerned them, about the issues that informed their lives. 
And what we saw was a real strong shift to nationalism. And by the way, it was exactly the same thing that was happening in Europe with, it was the seeds of, of, uh, of um, Brexit. It was going on in a lot of the European countries. It was essentially a throwing off of, of bureaucracy and, and of control, of external control. And that turned out to be the, those people weren't answering surveys. They weren't, or they weren't, uh, you know, saying what they really felt when they were asked who they were going to vote for. But we could see what was going to happen in the, in the, um, by going at it from an issue standpoint. So I'm still, I'm not close to businesses like that anymore, and I don't do any polling. But I got a real open question as to how many people are out there who aren't, I mean, sure as hell, the buzz is enormous on social media. You'd think if that's all you looked at or you lo- all you looked at was broadcast news that we're a country divided and everybody's loud and all. But I don't believe that. I think there's a group of people out there that isn't loud, that's keeping its mouth shut, that is open-minded but um, fundamentally grounded and ethical and will make its own decision. I just don't know how big it is and I don't know what it's going to – I don't know what they're going to do. So I think we get, I think there's a little bit of a false signal in what we see. I think it looks more I think it looks more divisive and terrible than it actually is. I just don't know how much. Yeah, I that's a good point. You know, I think you know, I think the question, you know, is what you're asking. What what we know that you know the the people are loud and uh what's the number of the people that are loud and what's the number on the silent majority? Yeah, I know. I, my theory is I think the silent majority is uh, shrinking. I mean, uh, is my opinion. I'm, I've changed. I've changed my view substantially. I'd say probably in the last couple of years, just from the way things are playing out. I mean, the boomers, the boomers have controlled everything, uh, or, and most arguably one of the most influential generations, you know, in certainly modern day history, but. Mm-hmm. They're holding on, and uh, boomers want to hold on. And uh, I, I started to really think this, though, and I challenge you guys to think about this. So as we grew up as kids, we saw our father. My dad was in Vietnam, and my grandfather was in World War II. And so we saw up the channel uh, and listened to their stories. Uh, my grandmother's family lost everything in the Great Depression. They had a lot of money. I mean, there's a lot of great stories in a lot of uh, our history and heritage. Well, now all of a sudden – my grandfather's died. My dad's, uh, he's close to 80 and we're going to be at the top of the rung and uh, we're going to be at the top of the rung and our kids will have kids and they'll be down where we were when we grew up. But the thing is uh, we can see all sides of, uh, all sides of that, that spectrum. We're remembering the three sides up above that our grandfathers and our dads uh, talked about, but we're also now seeing the change from below. And I, I just wonder if we're not anchored. We don't extremely anchor ourselves to the past a lot. Because I'm watching these kids, and like I told you guys before we got uh, and started recording this thing, I mean, I, I'm listening to my kids more and more on my investments, whether it's Spotify, Adobe, Tesla, whatever it may be. Uh, and they're going to make change. I mean, they're, this millennial generation and the Z generation – they're going to make change. And, and I don't care what you uh, or how you play it out. To get change, you have to have change. So all of my friends, yeah, I, and I talk to people all the time, and they want to hear change. They want, they, 
they're okay with change as long as nothing around them changes. <laughs> well, shit, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Think things are going to change. And, and then I challenge us on this. So I get this argument about daily. Our world has done nothing but improve. Well, I can go back to Genghis Khan times. I mean, we, let's go to every generation. We, we'd have to be out of our minds. Or we're, we, I know all of us three here are collectively smart, smart enough not to think that, that we're the peak. I mean, we're the smartest, and it's all going to go into shit from here. Now, we know better than that. We know our kids are smarter than we are, and we know their kids are going to be smarter than they are. And we know medicine is going to improve, and we know the longevity of life is probably going to improve. We know agriculture has improved immensely. Every single aspect of life has gotten better, not worse. Not worse. So when I sit and argue with my friends who I know are intelligent people and say, oh, my God, this country's gone to shit, everything's gone to shit. No, no, no. It's changing. It's going to be different. And people hate fucking change. Hate it. They just hang on like there's no tomorrow. You're making such a good point. I promise you, the world's going to be better. It's never not gotten better. Go all the way back. I mean, it's never not improved. If you take and look at 100-year increments. I mean, if you look at day-to-day, sure, you're going to have some swings and some goofiness here and there. But I, I trust that our kids are going to do better than we did. That's all I, I'm saying. And I know that's really hard for a lot of people to see right now when our kids act like knuckleheads. But I, I told Andy, I said, think about this now. Think about this. You're replacing you, Andy, uh, my dad, the biggest risk-taker generation in history, the boomers. And you're replacing them with I tried trophy generation, the millennials. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. The, the, the millennials are closer to their parents and family than any other generation in history. And you look at demographics. That's why we loaded up in Facebook early, because we knew this. We knew they would stay in contact with the boomers through Facebook mm-hmm. and through these social media platforms. And, and all I'm saying is it's just different. Yes, they got I tried trophies. Yes, they are not have huge balls like the uh, boomers. But that just means it's just different. And, and they're going to make change. They're going to get this shit changed, whether we like it or don't like it, because we don't have the demographics up. And the change is going to come. And I, I'm just here to tell you, I watch these kids, and I'm listening to what they're saying. We don't have to agree, but I, but I suspect things are going to change. And you look at the numbers. You guys ask numbers. So 60% of the population is white, basically. you got probably 18% Hispanic or Latino and 13% black. About 5% black males. 30% white though. You forecast out to about 2040, that shifts. And about 2042, in that year right in there, whites will be at less than 50%. So as we sit here, the millennial generation and the Zs are getting bigger and bigger because immigration, people that immigrate to the United States are in that age group. Right, well, right. and the birth rate differently. goes down. Right. Yeah, they see things differently. So it's like, I'm with you, man. I grew up in the Midwest. I love the, our heritage. I love the American flag. I love all the things that we've seen. But at the same time, I gotta, I gotta try and control my getting fired up to just be like, you know, at some point we gotta believe the kids. And it's the kids that are out at these marches. I mean, it's the kids that are at all these things. And whether it's because they want to be on social media or put it out there or post, I don't know what the hell the reason is, but. 
you know, I, Kansas City, hell, they're changing the street names, they're changing the fountains, they're talking about changing the name of all these historical places because someone may have owned slaves back in this time or that. I, I don't know. I mean, I know this, to get changed, things have to change. So you guys tell me. I, I, I mean, I'm baffled by it a little bit, but I talked to my old man. You guys are going to talk to my old man. He went, you know, he went to Vietnam in 67, 68, was there four years, and he's like, Oh, hell, same thing was going on in the in the mid to late sixties when yeah. he came back. Same type of <laughs> same type of big yeah. ruckus and push through Kansas City and through St. Louis and you know, he's like, It's a generation that's gonna make some change and and it doesn't matter what it is, they just wanna see change. They wanna put their fingerprint on it. So, their stamp. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, we were <laughs> So I, I'm, I, I really do uh, live in your world of the old bear versus the young bulls, Kevin. That's one of my favorite statements I've taken away in, in many of our conversations lately. Um, you know, our generation, our, our parents' generation, they, 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 all, they all stood for something, and they were supportive of things. Now, it's not a matter of what you stand for. It's a matter of what you stand against. And, and, and I hope that we can, you know, reel that in a bit and, and not – only be looking at ways to change is one thing, but change without a well thought manuscript or, or, or objective in mind, uh, you know, kind of leads to some crazy stuff. I mean, look at all the shit going on now. I mean, we're Eskimo pies no longer exist, Anchemine pancake mix no longer exists. Uh, you know, I mean, this is this is crazy stuff. I, I just I, I hear what you're saying. I agree that you know change is inevitable and. You know they're going to do it on their terms, and it's it's a it's a it's a different mindset altogether. But w- without having you know the basic foundation of what you stand for, because I don't see that in this millennial generation in terms of really being specific about what they stand for, as opposed to just <laughs> ranting for the sake of ranting. And you know maybe COVID, people have pent up energies and all these other things going on. But I'm I hear you, but I'm not liking how it's so far evolving. But, you know, again, things will uh, settle down at some point. Uh, Jim, I mean, do you, do you see it that way? I mean, you know, look at, you know, yeah, with, I mean, with all the BLM and all the pressure on different brands and, and, and you know, yeah. how's, you know, and, and that seems to be really changing. And I mean, look, fairness, I mean, I'm, you know, I'll be 62 next month, so I'm a member of that baby boom generation. And I, and I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in what Kevin says, you know, I think, I mean, I, don't you remember being 30 and thinking, God, these guys are just, you know, we gotta, we gotta run through here and change some stuff. I, I do remember that. And I, and I, and I think there's on the same, on the same token, by the same token, you know, I'm not, I don't believe in revisionist history. I'll just put that on the table. I, I just think, a lot of this stuff is misguided and, and, and I, I don't, you know, I don't, um, I think it, on a lot of these things you have to go back to why they were named what they were named. I mean, the Washington Redskins, that, that wasn't, that the name was not conferred on that football team to be, to, to show Native Americans disrespect. In fact, it was the opposite. It was conferred on a football team because they, because Native Americans were felt to represent courage and 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 balls and and fierceness in battle, and that's 
exactly the quality that the football team wanted. So I, I don't know. I, I don't see that as an, as an insult to those people. I see it as actually as, as glorification. I, I understand if people see it as an insult and are offended by it, but um, I don't think that the people who, I don't think the intent um, was anything like that. Um, Eskimo pies. I mean, that was, that product was named. That's, that's what's known in the, in the, in the kind of, not really the advertising, but sort of the human psychology world was a heuristic. I mean, those people who invented that product had invented one of the first frozen confections. And in order, they don't have a, a trillion dollars to advertise it. They have a limited budget, so they need to find some way of getting people to remember that it's cold. Um, so there was, again, there was no intent to offend people. Um, it, it was only to create a, uh, something that was memorable and would stick in the brain. So a, as a student of branding, and, and I've been one for a long time, I, I, and I, in fact, I even worked on a brand that I'm sure will come under pressure, Redman, chewing tobacco. But, I mean, that brand has come under pressure for being chewing tobacco. So um, at this point, probably the name is the least of it. But I don't, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of the revisionist stuff. But it's interesting, as I was listening to what Kevin was saying, as a consultant, I earn my living helping companies transition to the next phase. And a lot of the companies are, are legacy companies. And by that, I mean they're not, they didn't start life as digital companies. Most of them are in the media world or in the market research world or the branding world. They started life as as broadcast companies or uh, print companies or traditional survey companies. And their worlds have been redefined by the Internet. I mean, the Internet is the, is the great redefiner in our, in our generation. And, and their businesses have been redefined. And now you've got a situation where in order for these companies to grow, they have to learn new tricks. They have to bring in new people. And it's not just a matter of speaking a different language. It's a matter of operating in completely different realms. So what you end up with is groups of people who are like it's, and the analogy I'm drawing is with us, proud defenders of the old way it was done and avatars of the new way it needs to be done. And the only way to get those two groups I've learned in my world is you, you can't integrate them unless you create something new that values what they both know how to do. You think back to the AOL Time Warner merger, it was, it was doomed to fail because it never resolved the conflict that existed between the old school Time magazine guys who controlled all the clients, who understood advertisers, who were really, really capable partners with the people who spent the money, and this new world of digital people who, yeah, we're going to control the world and we're going to take over, but didn't have any of those skills. So they never resolved or those relationships. They never resolved that in a way that benefited the organization. So I actually see a lot of wisdom in what both of you guys are saying. There does need to be something new that's created, and it does need to be created if the country is a, is, works the same as organizations do. There needs to be something new that gets created that doesn't just say, old people, thank you very much, thanks for playing, you're out of the game, welcome aboard, all the new think, but rather says, look, we can't continue the old way. 
the new way without any without any any input or guidance from from what's gone before it doesn't work either we need to create something that's new that reconciles the two and when you do that in an organization i know it works question will be whether we can do it in the country don draper meet uh, mark zuckerberg right <laughs> i kind of wish that's i a, mean uh, you know you, you guys know me you know i'm a conservative but i I kind of wish we had somebody, I kind of wish, I wish we did. I wish we had somebody seeking office at a national level who really represented that thought process. Because I think that's the one that wins. And not just wins an election, but actually succeeds. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, look at Facebook. I mean, that really, I mean, the boycott and all that that they're trying to do on that, Jim, that's a, I know that's a subject dear to your heart. How do you see that whole thing yeah. and, 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 the, and the ability to attack and use the, these, these uh, you know, vehicles of, of communication is, is, is weapon, they're weaponizing a lot of these in some respect. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, and how do you see that playing out? Well, I think the thing that's interesting about Facebook about all these social media platforms is they've never really resolved whether they're publishers or whether they're platforms. And by that I mean as a publisher, through the New York Times or the Washington Post or NBC News or ABC, you have a you have a certain responsibility. I mean we can get all you know we can have our opinions about how liberal they are or how, you know, how much of an agenda they have. But they have responsibility as publishers. Um, to police what's said, to, to, to check facts, to, to go through protocols that establish what they say as based in truth or some version of truth. But social media platforms don't have that. Social media platforms, in the purest sense, are completely user-generated. People can say whatever they want, and they can... The, the beauty of the internet and the danger of the internet is that that can be published in effect to everybody with a computer, everybody with a handheld device, everybody who can access it. So the, the normal guidelines that used to govern publishing come down in, in a world of social media. The trouble is that, and you've said this before, Andy, we've talked about this lots of times, is that the people running those platforms aren't running them as utilities in many respects. They also have beliefs and agendas. Um, they steer them in certain directions. They enforce policies differentially to take down content, to promote other content. And they're in control of a, of a vast algorithmic capability that has, and this is what Facebook is under the most pressure for, that has the ability to separate people, to push people apart, to fragment society more than unify society. Again, because it appears that anybody willing who expresses an opinion is representative of, you know, others, and it isn't necessarily so. Um, I don't know. I've spent a lot of my second half of my career in digital media. I know a lot about how it works. You, you, you know that you worked with me in one and been an investor in my company and we did some pretty progressive stuff. Um, but, you know, we were always 
we were always mindful of privacy and anonymity. And in fact, we were staunch defenders of it. We, we erred on the side of, of goodness there, but it's not, you know, that's not universally applied. So I think, I think they're dangerous. I think they're dangerous media um, and capricious media. I, I think this, this Facebook boycott is, you know, there's a, there's a, there's shaming that goes on. There's following that goes on. I mean, they've attracted, they've gotten a bunch of major advertisers and to, to, I mean, they haven't obviously Facebook's opposed to the boycott, but a bunch of major advertisers have jumped in. And I, and I don't, um, I don't, in the end of the day, the, 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 the issue is that they enforced or didn't enforce editorial policies on something that's supposed to be a utility, which is where, where the rub comes. So I, I don't know. I, I, um, I, I watch it with some interest. Um, you know, it, it will, um, you know, I think, I don't know. I think what will happen is that, that Zuckerberg and his management team will figure out how far they have to go, um, what concessions they have to make in order to get advertisers to come back. But I don't think that's going to solve the problem. I'll actually be very impressed if advertisers hold out long enough to, uh, to, to really make the kind of change that needs to be made there. The, the problem is that Facebook is so big and so powerful and so essential to, to many brands' campaigns, they really can't afford to be without it for that long. Yeah, I, I, would, I would concur. I mean, I've owned Facebook off the, off the IPO and uh, you know, bought most every break that was substantial. And I'm probably going to continue to buy the, the deeper breaks. Um, you know, I look at it as this. So I look at it as a gun. And, and, and if you take the stance that guns don't kill people, people kill people. Facebook mm-hmm. doesn't kill anyone. People kill people on Facebook. People are stupid. Uh, you sit here and you let an algorithm feed you everything that only you want to see. It, the algorithms know what you want to read and what you want to see. And if you're myopic enough that that's all you look at, well, then that's all you're going to read and that's all you're going to see. So when my dad or grandpa went to work back in the day, oh, hell, you had the Kansas City Star, maybe the Wall Street Journal. You listened to a few opinions here and there. and Shit, nobody wanted to kill each other. Well, well, now, right. all day long, you're fed this, whatever your likes or dislikes are, you're fed that pile of shit all day long. And you eat, sleep, and breathe it. You watch, you either watch, I watch them all. I watch MSNBC, CNBC, and Fox News, because I want to see multiple perspectives, because I know that's how I get my ass kicked in the market, is being myopic and thinking that I'm a genius and I'm right. So I got to have multiple perspectives at all times. Now, most of my friends, no, that ain't how it works. They want to only hear the shit that confirms their beliefs. So they have a confirmation yes. bias that's so friggin' big, and all oh, Facebook right. does is just pump that shit up. And so now yep. when we're out at a restaurant and somebody suggests that their opinion or their perspective may be different than your perspective, shit, we got a full-blown fight. Because, yeah, you've, had nothing, you've, you've ate nothing else for the last two years except this shit that the algorithms are feeding you. Because they know that's what you like. So you have, it's mm-hmm. your job and your responsibility as a human being 
to get multiple perspectives, not just eat the same crap day in and day out and then think that you're going to go out and be a, a world thinker. There's, there's no way. So that's You're a highly unusual. You allow... Yeah, go ahead. You're an unusual guy, Kevin, in that respect. You, you really are. I mean, you're – I used to be – my business was, a, was personality research, and we did – that's how we did our ad targeting. We, did, we could target people on the basis of personality anonymously, but that's how we did it. You're what we would have called an openness five. You're kind of off the scale on that. And, I mean, that's obvious in your report. <laughs> that's why I read it because, you know, I'm not an ad guy. I'm an ad guy. And yet, you know, when I look at your, what, what you have, you have it, stuff in there on demographics, on Internet trends, on, uh, you know, soybean futures on every damn thing going on in the world, which is just, that's just evidence of who, of who you are and what you're trying to bring. And I, I, I'm honestly, God hats off to you. That's, that's why you're my new friend, but the, you're unusual. Um, in fact, I can tell you that you're 20% of the population max on the top end of that. And the trouble is that those algorithms you know, and you're right. It's it is a gun. So I, I, you know, I would be I would be a hypocrite to to play it any other way. But that that gun in the case of Facebook is extremely good at not only feeding you stuff you like, but feeding you stuff that keeps you that keeps you looking. So it yeah, does it, take over as the dominant feed for people. Yeah. yeah. You get your own newspaper uh, personalized every day. I mean, all day long. Yeah. You know, and it's crazy to know that they're that good. And uh, I, you know, I have to challenge myself every day. I was telling the kid, I said, you know, I really challenge. One, I'm trying to get my hands around just from a personal perspective. I know and I understand that racism and everything that's going on, just like say the Redskins, you know, taking down the logo, take or or uh, the march. I, I, I'm smart enough to know that racism, it, it isn't a pie. Like, it's not a pie. If, if, I, if, if we give black people something or Hispanic people something or Indian something, I mean, it doesn't take away from my pie. But why is my initial right. knee-jerk to be like, hey, 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 you can, hey, shit, you're getting one up on me. I mean, that feels like my knee-jerk, and I have to control myself. You know, I have to say to myself, like, hey, Kevin, seriously, I mean, if they take away the Redskins name, I mean, it's not, it's not really taken away from my pie. It's, it's changed. It's different. I am kind of don't like it, I guess, because, yeah, it's just, I guess it's chipping away at my history. But, I, you know, I think everyone's knee-jerk is if you view racism like someone's taking something from you or they're getting a piece of your pie, and I'm like, you know, it's really not. I mean, but but our knee jerk, like my knee jerk, and I know most of my friends, our knee jerk is like, "Hey, shit, you're giving them a 25 foot head start. What's going on here?" And, and you know, that's it's really not that way, though. It's not. That's not the case. I mean, they take down the Redskin name. What does that do to you or me or Andy? I mean, we don't. Our pie's not been busted. But you, but you're making feel a like it emotionally. Point. Yeah, I mean, I think you're making a very interesting point. Why would this all have be happening now? Oh. And I'll give you, I mean, look, I, you know, I grew up in the 70s. There was a lot of racial strife in the 70s, and there was also a lot of economic trouble. One theory says that this is it's exactly what you're, just, what you're talking about, about 
if, if, if we're in an expanding world, people feel less pressure, especially you can argue that people like us, you know, who, who are older and, you know, probably, you know, members of sort of the traditional establishment who, who have, have done okay and are now in a position of saying, well, okay. But the, 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 the country under COVID suddenly doesn't look like a growth engine anymore. I mean, arguably, we haven't been a growth engine for a while, but it doesn't look like a growth engine at all. In fact, it looks like it's contracting. So does that inflame passions? Does that cause people to say, on both sides, to say, this is a zero-sum game or worse, and I better be damn sure I get my part or protect my part? It might. Oh, yeah, you're right. It might. Yeah, I agree. You might be right. And all the crazy change always comes when things are going bad. I mean, that's when change happens. I mean, when things are going really good, yeah. most people, don't, you know, there ain't no need no. to change at that point. So we're all grabbing and kind of saying, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> this is working. Other people are panicking and saying, no, this ain't working. So, I, you know, that, that brings that old bear thing up. I I told the kids, Jordan was calling the other day because, Andy, you get care. I was selling some stock, and he was adding to his portfolio. Jordan's my son, Jim, and, and he's adding to his portfolio. And <laughs> he, he'd called to ask me about adding some. And I said, "Son, I'm taking I'm taking shit off," and he's done way better than I have this year. And I just sat there and thought, I said, "Listen, you've got to you've got to do your own thing. I mean, you got to learn to you know to be able to uh, I guess you know understand your subconscious and, and your." decision-making process because I and think about this Andy. everything they had come to me with over the last four or five years whether it was beyond me peloton it didn't matter what most of the time I'd shoot it down I'd be like yeah that's stupid I I don't want to invest in that and I started to self-reflect and I thought about it and I'm like hell they've come to me with like 15 great men I've been most of the time I asked you but it's stupid because I don't understand it you see I I I, I, I didn't think about it I didn't invent it I didn't. I wasn't raised with it. I, I just really don't understand it, so I discount it into the stupid pile. And uh, you know, when I do that, that's a boy. I think that's a big, big mistake. So, you know, a lot of this change and a lot of these different things. I mean, I don't understand it. I don't understand it at all. So, I'm my go-to is uh, that's stupid. These people are idiots. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I that's cost me dearly over these last four or five years when the Kids have bought, brought me phenomenal ideas, but uh, I'm just set in my old ways, I guess, or how we were brought up or how we view life, or uh, and, yeah. and, and you just discount it. You know, you discount it. So I, I don't know. I, it's it's crazy right now. But it's interesting. You, you do adapt. You do adapt to change, Kevin, very well. I mean, better well, yeah, is, is, I tried, is uh, yeah. Jim said than most. You know, your, your best advisors right now are your kids and, and, and what they're into and what they like. Because you know that's that's where the you know that's where that's where the ship's sailing, and uh, you know kudos to that. And I, I think you're right. A lot of us sit here and you know from the old school side uh, try to look at uh, PE ratios on you know traditional companies that we know, blue chip, blue blood, and uh, you know that's been boring. I mean that's where the, 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 all the actions on that side of the uh, on that side of the fence. Yeah. Well, hell, we go back six months. You're sending me a business plan from your son. Uh, talk, we're talking ghost kitchens. I didn't even know what the term was a year ago. I mean, yeah. 
Like in the viability <laughs> and the profitability of ghost kitchens. Like, what the hell? Yeah. I, don't, I, I don't know. Things are changing. I also think, I think there's a difference in, you know, how old are you, Kevin? Are you in your 50s? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think there's a difference just in 10 years. I mean, I would say to <laughs> oh. you that I'm, uh, you know, I'm about to be 62. I hope I'm a young 62. I, I, you know, I state I work in businesses where, you know, being 62 is like being 102. Um, so, I, you know, I work with a lot of young people, and I, I, I consider that a privilege. Um, and I know that when you talk with people, that's one of the things I think COVID has robbed us of a little bit is that interaction. Uh, that I, miss, I miss that. I figured out ways to fill it in, but, um, you know, I miss it. It, it. it put a real burden, I think, on people like me and you and Andy who want to know what's going on in the world to sort of make sure you stay in touch with a, with a broader network than you might because you're just not running into people anymore. You've got to make it, you got to make it, you got to, it's like you were saying about news, you got to seek your, seek your diversity. But I, I you know, I can't, there's no escaping the fact that I'm the age that I am and that I grew up in the era that I did. And that in some respect, no matter how progressive I hope I am or think I am, I'm still playing the part of the 62-year-old guy I was looking at called my dad 30 years ago. Um, you know, I, my kids are in progressive businesses. They're smart. They're smart boys. They're, you know, they don't have the same political beliefs that I do. One sort of does, but the other two are just completely on the other end of the spectrum. And you know, mercifully, both of them got their mother's brain, and they're they're smart boys. So they're not, you know. I can look at their beliefs and say, God, you guys have got to get with it. But, but, you know, I, I'm I'm taking a lot of energy from what you're saying. I admire what you're saying. Um, it's not going to change the way I don't think it's not going it's not going to change my political beliefs or my social beliefs. Um, but it's, it opens my mind to accepting that the importance of this change. And the thing that kind of surprises me about myself in this past hour is that I'm wide open to that kind of stuff in other realms in my, in my business because that's, that's the key to making companies change is that, is that open-mindedness and that creation of what I call a third place, the third space. But I may not be doing that as – proficiently in my own personal life and my own thought processes as I ought to be. So um, I guess I came on to comment today, but I learned a lot. It's very interesting listening to you. Hey, so I think you're right. Jim, think about that on a, on a farm Midwest. Like you, you came down to Brookfield, Missouri, said a lot of my yeah. farm families, you know, the, the oldest statesman still running the show. He's 80, 85 years old. And, uh, mm. you know, and you got four generations on a farm now, you know, think about that, uh, four. Yeah. And, you know, he never had a cell phone or he's never, you know, done things with social media. And the kids over here on the phone nonstop and texting and tweeting and, you know, the, the, the older gentleman that owns all the property, he's, you know, he's just got to be baffled by it. So I don't know. It's, it's just changed a ton, boy. So, a lot of change. Well, just, you know, 
even hey, let's uh, let's pivot here just for a minute if we could. You know, one of the things uh, that that we all are, are sorely missing is uh, sports. At least I know Kevin, you're a huge sports fan, and, and I am as well. Um, and and so how are you know that's going to play out with stadium events and and contact sports and the like, but. Jim, I know one of your uh, loves and fortes is uh, horse racing. So what about the upside-down Triple Crown, and how do you see this pandemic affecting horse racing? Well, you know, it's, all, it's already it's, – it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's probably the only sport that's, that's really kind of back at this point. Uh, I mean, baseball comes up here in a, in a few weeks, but, I mean, the evidence of that is that NBC is now carrying more horse racing than they ever carry in their lives. Um, but it – as you say, Andy, you know, it, it, uh, it turned the triple crown upside down because the, the Derby is normally as everybody knows the first or most people know the first Saturday in May. And then the triple crown plays out from there. The Preakness is two weeks after that. And the Belmont is three weeks after that. Well, we've already had the Belmont. Um, and we had the Belmont run at, at, uh, a mile and an eighth instead of a mile and a half. Um, it's already happened. And the Derby doesn't happen until September 5th. And the Preakness doesn't happen until October 3rd. So the whole thing is completely twisted and upside down. And the, the English, the, the UK and France, have done better. They've, they have a little bit of a different structure over there, but they've sort of kept most of their racing fixtures on their reasonably close to their normal schedules. Um, Although the English Derby, which is their big race, which usually happens on Belmont Day in the U.S., happened, just happened this past weekend. So everything's a little staggered back. But it's an interesting thing because the, the, the impact on – this is a world, a sports world, in which, you know, it's based on animals. And you can't, like with baseball, you can say, well, okay, we're done with baseball now. Um, you guys who are baseball players go home and we'll let you know when you can come back. But you can't do that with horses. They, you know, they, I'm preaching to the converted on your podcast. It, you can't do that with animals. You have to take care of them. You have to have people there to take care of them. And so they were essential businesses, except they couldn't race. And they allowed racing to resume in the United States in most jurisdictions, but in almost all cases without fans. So it's been a very interesting situation. Also in Europe, a lot of races being run, kind of the rhythm of the daily life of horse racing has returned, but without fans. So it's become a, a completely televised sport, a completely virtual sport, because you can't go to bet on the races. You, only, you have to have a betting account. You bet online. So in a weird way, it's sort of accelerated the uh, the transition of, a, I think, a lot of live sports into, into virtual and served as kind of a, an example. Um, I, I don't know. I'm sort of, a, you know, I'm as a handicapper and as a, as a horse racing fan, I'm going along for the ride. It's been a very, very interesting year, really interesting year. I mean, is it even on your radar screen? Do you – it's on mine because I'm obsessed with it, but do, do you guys – is it more on your radar screen than it would have been in any other year? Do you miss it? Do you not see it? Do you see it? What, what's the, what's your take on it? Yeah, I, yeah, me personally, I haven't been paying, I haven't seen much, uh, you know, media hype or anything on, uh, on the Triple Crown at all. 
Have you, Andy? I mean, I yeah. not much. From, no, yeah. no. Oh. No. No. Doesn't seem like no, I really haven't. Yeah. Derby will be the highlight yeah, of, hey. of the horse racing highlight anyway, Labor Day weekend, but it's weird. Very now, high. what are they doing there? Are they opening that up to the what, – what are they doing at the Derby? No limited fans or any I don't fans? think so. I don't think anybody will be able to go. You know, they, they just have the essential workers there and some of the, you know, the trainers and jockeys and stuff, but I don't think they're going to have a live crowd at the Derby. Um, I should have – Check that before I got on and talk to you guys, but I don't think so. Um, the, you know, it's a weird, it's a, it's an inter- the Derby. Most people don't understand this, but the der- the Derby, the Triple Crown is only for three-year-olds, so a horse doesn't have a second chance at the Triple Crown or any of the Triple Crown races. They can only run in them once. And the way the oh. thing is set up, they never run. A horse never runs a at least the United States, never runs the distance of the Derby before the Derby. So the Derby is contested over a mile and a quarter, which in horse racing language is 10 furlongs. Furlong is an eighth of a mile. And there are no 10 furlong races for three-year-olds before the Derby. It's contested in the spring, the first Saturday of, of May. And what makes the Derby significant is that it's the first time that a whole bunch of high-class horses who've run extremely well up to nine furlongs are facing 10 furlongs. And that 10th furlong has a very interesting way of separating the wheat from the chaff. Horses that are absolute world beaters at nine furlongs don't get that last furlong. And horses that weren't necessarily as competitive at nine furlongs but are bred to go that far or genetically predisposed to go that far, or physically predisposed to go that far, can, which is what makes it such an object of interest. It's not just that it's in Kentucky and in May. It's that it's, it's that's the first time they've ever gone that far. And they're essentially teenagers um, trying to cover that distance. So that's the intrigue of the Derby. So moving the Derby from May to September in the life of a three-year-old horse is an, is an eternity because in a normal racing year, by the time September rolls around, they're full-grown adults, and they're taking on older horses, four-year-olds and five-year-olds, in what are known as handicap races and, and high-class races for older horses and then trying to win a championship. So by inverting the schedule, what's happened is this, the, the fundamental significance of the Derby, even though, okay, it's still the Kentucky Derby, it's still a Ken- all these owners want to win it, but the thing that makes it at its root an intriguing race has changed. It's not the same. Hmm. Uh, and it's had the effect. Of, yeah, it is. It's very interesting. I, I like the story. Uh, when I used to go out and speak, I'd talk about guy. I can't think of his name right now, but uh, he's the one that picked American uh, American Pharaoh. Pharaoh at the Zion. Yeah. You know, yeah. Zion owned it, but he took him. He took that horse to the yearling sale down in Sarasota, and he hired this guy that uh-huh. was a trader on Wall Street to pick. So every year they these these guys take, and I'm not telling you anything. You know, they take these these horses down to the sale uh, in uh, down at I believe it's Sarasota, the big yearling sale, the big main one. And he hired a a new type. This guy had just kind of came on from Wall Street and was using algorithmic analysis and all kinds mm-hmm. of other things to mm-hmm. 
he told the guy he could help me pick a horse. So he goes down there, and the story that I had heard, and I'm pretty sure I'd, I mean, it had been confirmed by several people, but Zayat takes that, takes American Pharaoh down there. And, and at that time, I guess when you put him in the yearling sale, you don't actually have a name. So he wasn't named American Pharaoh because that's not right. cool to name your horse and then sell it. So right. they just put a number of horses. In. So Zayat takes the horse down there. He hires this cat from Wall Street to come down and give him an analysis of which horse to bid on at the yearling sale. And I guess they usually use the good old boy network and, you know, the guys that really know about this and that of horses. So this guy comes back to that and says, yeah, I don't see any horse really worth bidding on, except there is one horse I think you should get. And it's horse number eight. And, uh, Zayat says horse number eight. He's like, shit, that's my own horse. I brought him down here to sell him. And the guy's like, yeah, well, whatever you got to do, you, you need to keep that horse because he's the only one here that's worth the shit. And uh, he says, well, I, I don't think I can. And I guess it's a gentleman's rule. You, you can't just pull the horse out once you put him in. So he had to bid on the horse and pay the juice. I think he had to pay 30 or 40 grand juice to buy at that. the auction. The horse went for like minimum yeah. and no one else bid the horse. And, uh, and it ends right. up winning a triple crown. Pretty crazy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, horse racing. When we were young, when we were young as kids, I mean, shit. You had what was it? Uh, Secretary at Seattle Slough and uh, affirmed, right? And yeah. then nothing. And then that's yeah, right from like late seventies on, and then yeah, not till American Paris. So pretty crazy. Yeah, well, I think it's, uh, yeah. There was and there was a reason. I mean, there was reasons for that. I went the horse that would have won the Triple Crown, but who was a complete hard luck story and a tragedy was Barbaro. Yeah, remember I remember him? that horse. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would. That horse would have won the Triple Crown, in my opinion. He was, he was a freak, and he was bred to, to do it. He could also run on the grass, which most of these. I'm a grass. I like to bet horses that are that run on the turf. Really, and I do much sure. better at that, at that than I do at the runs that ones that run on the dirt. But um, he had, I mean, he was, you had enormous ability. It was tragic to lose him. You know, I've been to that Saratoga yearling sale, the one you're talking about. In fact, I've been to it probably five or, five or six or seven times. That, that's, that's a bucket list item. Really? If you, yeah. I mean, if, if you ever find yourself up that way, it's in Saratoga, you know, in upstate New York, and uh, I'll just make this invitation to either of you guys. I, I have a friend who's, I have a bunch of friends who are involved in that, and we'll go to that sale. You, that's something you, you got to see. I mean, you're, you're, um, you're in a sales pavilion. You can out, you can go out and walk around. You can look at them. You can talk with the people who bred them. You, I mean, it's just a, you know, it's one of those things that's, it's just exciting if you're if you like that sort of thing. And they're, they're, these these horses are just magnificent animals, and you know, there's all walks of life there. There's people who have enormous amounts of money. And people who are, you know, just lovers of the breed and working people and trying to trying to make it work. I mean, it's just it's a it's a great. I think it's a great sport that way. It's a it's a it's a leveler. And uh, um, I don't know. I I have a real. Andy's right. I have a real heart for it. It's been my kind of my passionate hobby for forty five years. So. How about music? You know, I wish I had a pile of money to show hey, you. Yeah. That, speaking, of, speaking of passionate hobbies, Kevin. You, you love country music about as much as anyone I know, and I think uh, a lot of your listeners do too. 
Um, but you know, you've had to change things around on your uh, on your on your letter, daily letter. <laughs> where, where are you on the music side now, Kevin? Are you forgotten about it? Or? Yeah. yeah. No, hey, you know, I've through the years I've had a few friends make it pretty big in uh, music and country music, and we've always uh, my wife and I and whole life revolved around music. I remember growing up with kids and mom and dad always listened to music and everyone. So yeah, no, I mean, I, I, even that though has changed. I, I laugh with the kids. I tell the kids, I said, you know, mom and I used to go to concerts and, uh, it didn't cost anything really to go to concerts. And they tried to get you to buy the eight track, the cassette, the album, you know, whatever it may have been at the record store. And that's what they were trying to pimp and get you to sell. And now that the, the Music itself's free, basically, on Spotify or Apple Music, but they charge you an arm and a leg to go to the damn concert. I said, it's just funny how everything just flips over. I mean, it just completely rotates around, so I, I just crack up. But, uh, you know, it is interesting, and, and what a wide variety of music we now have uh, we can listen to. or Just like the social media, just like you were saying with Facebook and social media, I mean, everybody's now got a voice, and hell, everybody can now... Uh, you know, I think we saw it with Justin Bieber out of the YouTube days and uh, how these kids can come from nowhere now and just uh, make it happen off these platforms. So Jim sent me an awesome playlist. Uh, Michelle and I listened to it last night and had the kids over uh, for dinner. And I was going to put it in the report and pass it along to everybody on Spotify. So, yeah, pretty cool. And uh, what do you listen to, Jim? What do you guys? What do you? Did you used to go to a lot of music and concerts when you were younger? Yeah, I used to go to a lot of them. But you're totally right. I grew up in New Jersey, on the Jersey Shore, and when I was a kid, Springsteen was the guy. So there's, that's why there's two Springsteen songs on that playlist I sent you instead of just one for everybody else. Yeah, I um, told my wife, you opened up with Springsteen right out of the gates on it. I said, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he was kind of, he was the guy um, when I was a kid. When I was a kid, there was a, there was a, when he, when Springsteen wasn't touring, all of his band members were in other bands. So we used to go to a, there was a beach club that uh, had, was a bar and they had, they had dancing and Clarence Clemens, who was Springsteen saxophone player played in a, like a swing band, a bar band um, up and down the Jersey shore. And, and we all knew him. He was, a, he was a lovely guy. I mean, a really nice guy. And, I mean, you know, you look back on it now and you think, holy God, that was, that was I mean, he, that's a legendary band. I mean, we did, but at the time, they were just working musicians, these guys. And, you know, that was, a, it was, it was, yeah, it was kind of a special time for music on the, in Jersey then, on the Jersey Shore. It was a, as Andy would say, Jersey's got to be good for something, and that's what it was. You know, <laughs> what are you listening well, to? I'm excited. Do you have a Spotify your, playlist? Give us, give, give a Spotify account. Uh, no, I don't yet. I, I probably will after today. Oh, um, old Bear, Pandora's been my go-to, but uh, Old Bears, yeah, right. That's right, Kevin. That's right. But no, I'm. Uh, I'm uh, that's my my mission for the week to get on Spotify, and I think you've inspired me with your uh, playlist that I look forward to hearing. <laughs> And uh, that's all good. Um, gosh, guys, we've been on it for a while here, and we covered a lot of territory, and I think it's been one of our best uh, podcasts so far. And I really thank you a lot, Jim, for coming on. Did you have any final words you wanted to leave our uh, listeners with? 
No, I just I I thank you guys. I I I I learned a lot. Uh, it was really fun to to hear you guys talk and hear what you had to say. And I I um yeah I I come away uh, having learned and a lot and been inspired by you. So thank you for that. It was it was it was a privilege to join you guys. I really did enjoy it. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate well, Kevin, as always, you, uh, you you bring a perspective that's uh, unique and um, I think resonates very well with people. And do uh, you have anything you want to uh, wrap it up with? No, like I said, it's uh, it's uh, times are times they are changing. That's uh, for sure. And I, you know, I I, I think we just got to stay open minded and try and surf the waves as best as possible here. Not not uh, maybe not fight them as much as we may tend to uh, want to so i don't know it's it's definitely a unique uh, period of my life for sure so watching my kids do this it's uh it's interesting i know all you guys are in the same boat so we're all seem to have them uh, about the same age Good for a wise well, man Kevin. Yeah. thank you yeah i really do yeah well again guys thanks so much uh great podcast and uh great thoughts and great uh perspective and uh Look forward to uh, getting together again sometime soon uh, with you, Jim and Kevin. You, as we as we say and try to end uh, many of these calls, uh, aim low. They're riding Shetlands as they are challenging times, and um, you know maybe we'll get some sort of a pony race going, and uh, we can we can uh, come up with a new type of uh, a racing form. <laughs> Changes and other. All right, it's a deal. Enjoy being right. with you guys. Yeah, thank you. All right, guys. All right, all of us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Cheers. Thanks. Have a great have a great day.